real hog. <laughs> Get ready indeed for another exciting episode of Jackman Radio. As always, I am your host, Eric Jackman. I'm your co-host, Mike Jackman. And joining us, as always, our producer, engineer, sound extraordinaire, Mr. Aaron LaFond. Thank you, Aaron. Tonight, very exciting and special episode here at the Bungalow in beautiful Jaffrey, New Hampshire. I am so pleased to be joined by a political figure in the American landscape who's been involved in Republican politics, I would say, for a better part of the last 40 to 45 years. Boy, am I old. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it uh, gives me great pleasure to uh, welcome Mr. Andy Card in studio. Eric, it's great to be with you and Mike and... In beautiful downtown Jaffrey yes. Center, yeah. New Hampshire. Yes. That's right, the hub. The hub, <laughs> the hub of Monadnock. The second most climbed mountain in the world. That's He's right. got it. He's got his facts down. He's done his homework. Andy Card, born May 10th, 1947, or I, I can omit the date if you Old. want. We can edit that. Old. I know that's not public record. Uh, is an American politician who was White House Chief of Staff under President George W. Bush from 2001 to 2006, as well as Bush's White House Iraq group. Card previously served as United States Secretary of Transportation under President George H.W. Bush from 1992 to 93. Card announced his resignation as Chief of Staff on March 28, 2006, effective April 14th of that same year. Card was temporarily the acting dean of the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University, while Ryan Crocker fulfilled his U.S. ambassador duties to Afghanistan before stepping down in July of 2012. Uh, more closer to home, uh, it was announced on November 25th of 2014 that Card had been selected as the fifth president of my alma mater, Franklin Pierce University, in my hometown. Whoop. Yeah, I guess. There we go. Woo! <laughs> Ravens, baby. Ravens, baby. Boosters. Uh, my hometown of Ringe, New Hampshire, and his tenure began in December of 2014. Um, I completed my Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science in 2009, and I'll be wrapping up my master, master's degree in education to teach social study secondary yet and next year. the proud ravens franklin pierce university ravens, ravens are the number one baseball team in all of the land <laughs> number one division two school baseball team oh. on our way to the ncaa world series i hope and i hope we win <laughs> our baseball go. team was always legit they always had guys go pro and get drafted and always had the prettiest girls on campus props to the baseball team all the way through <laughs> So, Andy, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I think we'll have a little fun tonight. This will be a little less serious, I'm sure, than some interviews you've done in your career. Um, just to get started, um, a little bit about your background. Um, you're, are you from Holbrook, Massachusetts? My wife and I both grew up in Holbrook, Massachusetts. I was born in Brockton, 
but that's because that's where the hospital was. Right. Other than that, I grew up in Holbrook, Massachusetts, and I met my wife in Holbrook in the fifth grade. Wow. From the sixth grade on, we were in the same classroom, and we've been married now, it'll be 48 years this year. Congratulations. And, but however, we did reach the age where our children are now older than we are. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you start counting backwards after a certain point. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, Mike and I are, are originally Mass Natives too. We were born in Framingham and grew up in the town of Ashland. And our uh, father. Uh, right near Holliston. Yes. Hopkinton. Right Hopkinton. Oh, yeah. Beautiful Boston area, Marathon yeah. Territory starting line. And our, uh, our father uh, moved from Canada to L.A. to Dorchester in the mid-60s. And uh, lived in Dorchester, and our mom's from Cambridge. Dorchester. So. Dorchester. Yeah, Caddy Corner, Fields Corner. Yeah. <laughs> so we have a lot of mass uh, roots in our uh, our background as well, so kindred spirits in that regard. So what was it really in your younger years that kind of uh, gave you the political itch? I mean, what, what was there a candidate? Was this a family member? I mean, what really? No, it was a, I grew up in a family where politics was not a dirty word. In fact, it was a noble expectation my grandmother, my father's mother, had been a suffragette. She fought for women to get the right to vote. And when women did get the right to vote, which wasn't until August of 1920, my grandmother was literally the first woman to register to vote in my hometown of Holbrook, Massachusetts. <clears throat> she was controversial because she was such a militant suffragette, but she was also controversial because when she got the right to vote, she also registered to be a candidate for office and ran for the school committee and got elected to the school committee in Holbrook, Massachusetts. Wow, a lot of firsts. <clears throat> so I grew up in a family where politics was expected. It, it wasn't supposed to be an exception. It was the norm. And I say that because my grandmother used to say the most important word in the Constitution is the very first word, we. And she said it applies to all of us. It's an inclusive we. It doesn't say we, some of us. We, in order to have a more perfect government, we created this government. So it's our government, and we should participate. She also said that the Constitution was a spectacular document because it gave us rights and privileges. But it said there was no obligation unless you accept the invitation in the Constitution. So we had to accept the invitation, register to vote, show up and vote, run for office, serve in government. So that's how I grew up. So I didn't know that politics was bad. So it was kind of an hereditary thing. It ran in the family. And I was and so naive, you know, <laughs> if you go back and look and, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? When you graduate from high school, you always put it in the yearbook, in the back oh, of the yeah. yearbook. Oh, there's oh, yeah. the picture. What do you want to do when you grow up? I said I wanted to be an engineer and a politician. I did not know that that meant I was an oxymoron. <laughs> I, I don't know whether I was an oxy or a moron, but and maybe I'm a moron now when I was oxy then. Could be. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, in, in, in my ambitions, I wrote to become a, a senator in mine because it's kind of what everyone expects of me and it's kind of what I, would, I want to expect of myself. Well, it was a nickname you were given from a professor at Franklin Pierce. Yeah, think, yeah. It was dubbed the senator freshman year by Doug Lay in the history department. Well, that's because, a serious uh, dubbing. Because I had skipped class <laughs> at Pierce to go to a political event with John Kerry and his brother and I weaseled my way up to the very front and it was happened to be on C-SPAN. And I think one of them, either one of the other students or Doug saw it on C-SPAN. 
and said, uh, yeah, you weren't in class the other day. Well, I saw where you were. I was like, well, hey, at least I, you know, I wasn't, you know, off doing something bad. Well, some people might think that's bad, hanging out with the Carries. I mean, you know, but uh, <laughs> I was, I was caught on film. The Iranians think it's great. That's true. Oh <laughs> man, good one, dig. <laughs> that's a little rough and tumble mass politics for you. We'll definitely get to that. Okay, so coming up, um, I see here in your background that uh, you also spent some time um, in the U.S. Merchant Marines in '66 to '67. I, I, I was a member of the. You, the United States Navy. I went to the University of South Carolina from Holbrook High School and went to South Carolina on a Navy ROTC scholarship. I then went to the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, Kings Point, Long Island, New York. Yep. And I, did, I served two years, quote, in the Navy. I was out a merchant vessel uh, and got to travel all throughout the Caribbean. Nice. Mm. Sounds hey, good. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a bad deal. With that. <laughs> but I always feel guilty because... Uh, that's the period of time when America was in the Vietnam War. Right. And most of my friends who served in the service were doing something that had to do with the Vietnam War. I was really either on college campuses or on a merchant vessel traveling the Caribbean. Well, hey, that was a, the path you went down, you know? Other people went down different paths. Not everyone who was eligible to serve during Vietnam, <clears throat> Bill Clinton, uh, served. So I wouldn't feel that bad. So it was... <laughs> I, I love America. I love people who do answer the call to duty, and I respect those who serve in the military or in the clandestine services. I know how yes. hard it is to make those two commitments. We all have friends in all of those neck of the woods, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's so awesome. Much. And then uh, also I see here, I don't know if this was this was probably after the, um, the Navy, uh, you were at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard? I did. I well, after I graduated from college, and I was married and had two kids by the time I graduated, so I was, like, really broke. Yeah. And <laughs> I moved back to Massachusetts, uh, actually ran for the planning board in Holbrook, Massachusetts, and got elected. Uh, my first elective office, no pay, Thursday nights, seven, <laughs> Long seven <hours>. to nine, <laughs> uh, cul-de-sacs, curb cuts, and you lose friends, don't make them. <laughs> right. Yeah, but it was a great experience. I then ran for the state legislature, and I lost, and then I ran for the state legislature and won. But I also did go to the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, and I had a wonderful experience, made lifelong friends, and I bumped into any, many of my classmates as I've traveled around the world. It's amazing how sure. many people I met uh, when I was at the Kennedy School that I've seen in Lagos, Nigeria, or Tokyo, Japan, or Moscow, Russia, or... Yeah. Paris, France, or something has been kind of oh, cool. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, you get spectacular alumni going in and out of that place because it's one of the most distinguished institutions on the planet. It is. I And I had a great time there, and I ended up teaching there a little bit uh, when I was in the legislature as well. I also taught at Stonehill College okay. a little yep. bit. But don't think I'm an academic. <laughs> Well, you, who, who else taught at the Kennedy School of Government? Former Minnesota Governor Jesse Ventura. That's right. <laughs> you ever meet uh, Jesse Ventura? I have met Jesse Ventura, and uh, he's a character. Oh, yeah. He, he's, <laughs> he's a patriot. He is. Navy SEAL bad boy. The yep. underwater demo. Yep. Um, did all First that. independent governor from Minnesota. <laughs> Talks like this a little. 
Yeah. Right. So um, Massachusetts House of Reps, 1975 to 79, um, you served in the 8th District of Norfolk? I've, I served in two districts because when I first got elected, the Massachusetts House had 240 members. Okay. And then we went to a constitutional amendment and reduced the size of the legislature to 160. Okay. So I was a state representative uh, from Holbrook and Braintree. Okay. And then I was a state representative for Holbrook, Abington, and Whitman. And I served two terms in each one. And then I ran a forgettable campaign for governor of Massachusetts in 1982. So yeah. it was a great experience, but yeah. only my wife remembers. <laughs> <laughs> well. And she won't let me forget. <laughs> right. In 82, we saw um, Dukakis win the um, governorship. It was his comeback year. Right, come back. He, had, he was unseating a Democrat, right? Didn't he oppose, wasn't the current, current governor a Dem? Yeah, Ed King. King. And he, he, he primed Ed King out. in the primary. Wow. Kind of like what Teddy tried to do to Jimmy right. Carter in 1980. 80, yeah, yeah. Yeah, tried to out-primary a sitting, um, you know. That must have been an interesting climate, though, back then in the 80s in Massachusetts politics. Obviously, I was I mean, It was very lonely to be a Republican in Massachusetts. Yeah. Well, I mean, you had Ted Kennedy still moving the Kennedys, you had Tim O'Neill. Actually, had... The, worst, the worst year was the year that I got elected to the legislature, which was 1974, because Watergate had taken its toll oh, on the yeah. Republican Party. And it turns out I was the only Republican in New England that defeated an incumbent Democrat in the 1974 election. Wow. And I defeated an incumbent Democrat in a district that was six to one Democrat. And my opponent, who uh, was, is a wonderful person, his name was Bob Frazier, uh, obviously Irish Catholic, union leader, selectman in Braintree, 10 kids, and I was supposed to lose, and I had no money. And he didn't take me seriously, so I campaigned, knocked on doors, and he, I knocked on his door virtually every night, and, <laughs> and he was always home. He Maybe wasn't he campaigning. Got, Maybe he, he wasn't voted campaigning. for you. Well, that, you and go. I ended up getting 67% of the vote. Wow. wow. And this is the truth. Two years later, I had to run again in that same district, overwhelming Democrat, I had to run against a very strong Democrat. Bob Frazier actually endorsed me. No kidding. So wow, interesting, and yeah, what what kind of um, what kind of juice did you have to raise back then? I mean, I said you know you said you didn't have any money, but I mean <sighs> to be somewhat competitive, I mean to get did you have yard signs? Any I had kind a of few yard signs. <coughs> they, I actually made my own bumper stickers at first. <laughs> yeah, and I went and bought contact paper, and I got a silk screen, put my C A R D representative <laughs> on it. Nice, and I'm doing the self silk screening, dragging the ink across the silk screen, making these beautiful contact paper bumper stickers, drying them all over my house. <laughs> then I put them on cars and it rained. And there were lots of white stripes <laughs> in the neighborhood. But never the word card was just washed away. Yeah, it was a wash. So vote for the whitewash. <laughs> That's excellent. Uh, right, so uh, Mass House of Reps and then... Um, you're out in 83, the early 80s. I, I, it was, I ran for governor in 82, did not run for re-election to the legislature, so it was kind of up or out. And uh, it was a phenomenal experience to run for governor. I loved it. I have a saint for a wife, and she put up with me. We had, our children were in, uh, like, I think, sixth and seventh grade, so it was a tough, 
tough time in our family. And, you know, running for office, the truth is you have to be schizophrenic if you're going to be successful in politics. Yeah. You have to be very selfish when you're in for office because you're asking for money, yes. you're asking for volunteers, and you're asking for votes. Yeah. And that's pretty a self, that's a selfish thing to do. It's all about me. Please help me. Right. <clears throat> when you serve, you have to be selfless. Right. So it's not about you. It's a 180. It's about everybody else. It's about the people. And some people don't make that transition. They stay selfish. And, but I was, I benefited by having fabulous parents growing up, growing up in a community that I loved, Holbrook, Massachusetts. And I really, really, truly loved representing other people. I didn't want to impose my will. I wanted to reflect good judgment as I tried to discern their will. Right. That's yeah. great. Nice that, way to look at it. It reminds me of, um, you know, ter uh, ter term limits, how long someone can be in one position. What are your, what are your thoughts you know, on, funny. on term I, limits or I think in holding theory, the same I office? like ther term limits in practice. I've come not to appreciate them. Yeah. And that's because if you, if you get wholesale turnover in legislative bodies, I don't mind term limits on executives like presidents and Governor, governors and things yeah. like that. But legislative bodies, I tend to like having institutional knowledge that reflects wisdom. And it doesn't have to be a majority of wisdom, but there needs to be some center of gravity with wisdom. And so I do think, I'm not in favor of term limits that you want to flush the toilet every four years. I think it's good to keep a few turds in the toilet. <laughs> we got plenty down in Congress, man. It starts to smell after Lots a while. Lots of big turds but, down know. there. <laughs> no, that's an interesting perspective. I mean, I've been kind of back and forth. I've kind of been rigid on term limits because, as you said, it turns into a lot of people become very self-serving. And they forget and why they were collecting political favors and big donors well, and then this for that. After actually, and we're in a state right now that has, I think, the most unique legislative body. It is very unique. It's a, it's a very large <laughs> legislative body. Yeah. It, its compensation does not mean anybody is running for the money. <laughs> it's no, like 100 bucks it's a year. 100 dollars. 100 a year plus gas. You get to get the gas. You get the cool you pin, get, the cool the license pin. plate. Cool license plate, lousy parking spot. Yes. <laughs> oh, there's no parking in Congress. <laughs> no parking. No parking. Yeah, where the hell are you going to park? Parking. But, <laughs> but you also, uh, in, in New Hampshire... And my grandmother lived, my grandmother on my mother's side lived in Conway, New Hampshire. Oh, okay. So I used to go up to Conway a lot and see the, the clan. And she lived on a tiny little street called Quint Street. And there were like eight houses on Quint Street. And I can remember being in my grandmother's kitchen when some neighbor came to her and said, it's your turn to be the state rep this time. <laughs> no, I'm never going to do that. No, come on. Everybody else on the street's already done it. <laughs> That's awesome. It really is a citizen legislature. It's through, a very throughout. much citizen legislature. And you know what? Everybody's represented. Yes. Well, uh, tenfold. What is there? Four hundred and it's oh, one of the largest like four hundred in there. Something like four hundred state reps. Uh, how many state senators? This is New, New Hampshire. Uh, Fifteen, twelve dozen. Or isn't it eleven? Is it? It's not that many for state senators. Seventeen. You know, to go with that, it's like we were talking about the primary. Then you've got the governor's council. Executive council. Executive right. council. Oh, yeah. and then yeah. the Executive governor's council. Of then you've got the governor. Right. But that's one of the great things about New Hampshire, though, too. We were talking about the primary earlier and how uh, the three of us are obviously big supporters of First in the Nation. Um, not just because we live here, by the way, and it benefits us. But uh, the joke is, you know, well, who are you going to vote for? And it's like, well, I don't know. I've only met him three times. That's right. Yeah. You know, it's... 
It's, when uh, I shook his hand, he was looking at somebody else. Yeah, that rubbed me the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So <laughs> so we're hoping uh, you can get uh, some, some more figures to come to Franklin Pierce and Ringe. And well, Franklin, Pierce, Franklin Pierce, New Hampshire should be a destination. And I think it's an obligation. If you want to be president of the United States, you're obligated to come to New Hampshire. Okay? But it should be a destination for anybody who is serious about being president. And I'd like Franklin Pierce to be a destination where every candidate feels comfortable in coming. So I, yeah, I know who I am. I'm very comfortable in my own skin. Now, there may be people uncomfortable that I'm in my skin, <laughs> but I'm very comfortable in it. But I want people to know that Franklin Pierce really doesn't pick sides as Franklin Pierce. We do encourage everyone to come and see who they would pick. So students, faculty, neighbors, we want them to come to Franklin Pierce when we get candidates to come in. But we want all candidates, all stripes, all philosophies to come and feel safe in talking about whatever they want to talk about at Franklin Pierce University. Yeah, absolutely. Frank, most people in America don't know who Franklin Pierce was. He was the 14th president of the United States, the only president from New Hampshire. He was also the president who made every other president look good. Really good. Yeah. Really good. Really good. And there's many reasons for that, you know. We, we don't have to get into. Uh... Well, you know, it's it's the namesake of my alma mater. I'm proud. I'm proud of Franklin Pierce. Me too. You know, he went hard when he was in the White House. No, recently he was he was called to be one of the sexiest presidents. Very handsome guy. Very, Very handsome debonair. guy. I didn't. Yeah, you, you've seen yeah. pictures of him. Come on, you can make a judgment not, call. Not like running running shorts like like W. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a fit president right there. Yeah, the oh, most yeah. athletic president I think George W. Bush. George W. Yeah. Bush. W. George W. Bush. Next to Obama's got that by a mile. Come on, Andy, time for a run. Let's go. It's five in the morning. <laughs> no. Let's do this. Come on, get up. President, president George W. Bush is one of the most disciplined people I have ever met. I mean, he truly is very very disciplined. I first met him when most of the discipline came from his mother, but after that, oh, yeah. it was self-discipline. Yeah. But, he, but seriously, he was disciplined about diet, exercise, doing his homework. He was disciplined about making decisions, and he was disciplined about his schedule. If he said he'd be there at 8 o'clock, he would show up at 7.59. Yeah. If he said the meeting will end at 8.30, it would end at 8.30. He was very, very disciplined. And I have great respect for him because I witnessed that discipline as he dealt with impossibly difficult challenges. Yeah, and that was it's a good segue and kind of I wanted to get from uh, your move from just state politics, getting into your time with Ronald Reagan, um, working in the West Wing as a special assistant to Ronald Reagan. How did that come to be? Well, after that phenomenally successful campaign for, for governor, governor of Massachusetts yep. in 1982, uh, <laughs> One of the cool things that happened was I got a call from James A. Baker III, who was chief of staff to President Reagan, and he asked if I would like to come to Washington, D.C. to work in the Reagan administration. Okay. So that's what brought me to Washington, D.C. I ended up working at the White House as special assistant to the president for intergovernmental affairs, liaison to the nation's governors and statewide elected officials. Wow, was That's that important? That's a lot. Now, what I came to learn is the longer the, your title, the less important you are. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the more hours you're going to work. Yeah, the long, yeah, first one so there, what, last one. So what was that like? Week. I mean, just rolling up to D.C., being a mass boy, um, 
Because I, I kind I of, I don't have a similar story, but um, I spent a year in Washington. I lived in McLean, Virginia for a year and worked for a nonprofit that, down there. That's the high rent district. Uh, yeah, big money. <laughs> I had to do some things uh, that I'm not proud of. No. Um, I lived in McLean um, off of uh, Chainbridge Road, Dolly Madison, 123. I live, I live right there. Oh, do you? Okay. My wife is a minister, and her church was right on Dolly Madison. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I used to take the Trinity George... United Methodist Church. Okay. Yep. I took the George Washington Parkway to get to work over to Arlington and Keybridge. And um, so coming from, like, small town New England and then going to D.C. to kind of start your career and get, get going, it's, it's, it was overwhelming at first. It really was. What was your experience like oh, getting fabulous. settled into Washington? Where did you I, live I, originally in Washington? We lived in Springfield, Virginia, okay, which is about 15 miles south. Yep. And uh, we had uh, three children. Two of them were in high school, and one of them was in junior high school. And it was, it was only about 15 miles from the White House, but the traffic meant that that was about an hour and 10 minute trip. Yeah. So the traffic was terrible. It's hideous. And working at the White House, it's not a job, it's a commitment. So you work very long hours. You live there. And so it was tough on me from the commuting point, but oh, it was spectacular to work down there. I never dreamed that I would visit the White House, never mind be able to work in the White House. And I loved working for President Reagan. President Reagan had been a governor so my job was the liaison to the nation's governors. So he had great empathy and great friends who were governors. Sure. And he liked them all, no matter what their philosophy or political persuasion and all that kind of stuff. So he cared deeply about what the governors were doing. So I had a disproportionately intimate relationship with President Reagan because he cared about the governors and he wanted to know how they were doing. So it was both policy and some of it was personal. You know, oh, he's a good guy. I understand that his son is having a tough time. Let him know I'm thinking about thinking him. About it, was, him. It, was, it was just wonderful to witness. But I also came to appreciate how President Reagan could digest very complicated issues and translate them so the rest of us could understand it. Yeah. And he was a fabulous communicator. He had uh, a great sense of when things should happen not just what should happen, but when should what happen. And so I had great respect for him and I loved working with President Reagan. Uh, among the most remarkable people I've met in life was is James A. Baker III, Secretary Baker. And then obviously I'm close with George H.W. Bush, who was, uh, I, I signed up with him. I first met him in the late, in the mid-1970s. And when he first ran for president in 1970, 879-80. I was the chairman, unpaid chairman of his campaign in Massachusetts and used to pick him up in a little red Chevy Chevette <laughs> and drive him around Massachusetts and then pass him off to Governor Hugh Gregg in, in New Hampshire to oh, take yeah. him around New Hampshire. Really? No so you were, you were the point guy and body man and all that? I'm not sure I was ever a point of anything guy. I was fortunate. I had the Chevy Chevette. I, I guarantee I took then we called him Ambassador Bush. Right. I, I took Ambassador Bush. I think I took him to his first McDonald's drive-through, and when he said he was hungry, I said we're going to Pizza Hut. So he 
Yeah, I gave him real life experience. Yeah, you, you, you brought you brought him down a little bit. <laughs> he didn't want broccoli on his peach. Not gonna, not do, gonna it. do it. Not gonna, not gonna do it. Not gonna do it. No, wouldn't be prudent. Bar. Wouldn't be prudent. <laughs> did uh, did H.W. Uh, Bush ever tell you any cool CIA stories? Because I know he was director for a year, right? A year or two. He was. That was probably his favorite job. Yeah, a CIA director. I mean, that'd be, that be—that yeah. sounds like a cool job. That's epic. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, well, he is. Well, they named it after him too. The George H.W. The, the building is named Center after, for Intelligence. The, the Langley. Langley is named McLean, after McLean, Virginia, Bobby where the Bush. CIA headquarters is. It's called the the George Bush Intelligence Center. Center. Yeah. Some people thought that represented an oxymoron when his son was president, but it uh, didn't. Uh, yeah, we, yeah, we've heard that joke. Now, did he have any other history with the CIA before being appointed he did director? Not. No, he president, never the first President Bush had no relationship relationship with the CIA until he became the CIA director. Uh, what he did have was great intellect. He was a Phi Beta Kappa grad of Yale, graduated in three years. Oh, yeah. He'd been, you know, the envoy to China, the first envoy to China. Under Nixon? Under Nixon. Right, right. Uh, he'd been chairman of the Republican Party, been a member of Congress. He'd, he had a tremendous track record as a businessman as a philanthropist, as a, uh, I'm going to say, a political figure, he knew what it was like to run for office. He knew what it was like to serve in office, and he looked like what it looked like to organize so that others could win office. And so I think he's just a remarkable man. I, he's probably the person who had the greatest influence on me in terms of my political career. And of course, his father, Prescott Bush, being the senator from senator Connecticut, from you come Connecticut. from that line the, of government, being in government, and, and Al Gore's dad. And Prescott Bush served in the Senate at the same time. They became fast friends. And they were the kind of the people that brought us the interstate highway system. Yeah. Right. So they During Eisenhower's tenure. Like right? So the 50s? That was been the, yeah, the 50s. Yeah, yeah, Bush was kind of a transitional uh, director, I believe, of the CIA because they you just come out of the church. They got rid of Stansfield Turner. Nixon, you know, was before him, I think. Stansfield Turner. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he right. so he, he helped save Carter. the CIA. The CIA was under tremendous attack, um, and you know, I'm trying the, the senator from Idaho. I can't think of his church. Name. Frank Church. Yeah, Frank Church. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the, the, the church, church commission and all that kind of stuff. So the CIA was, they were, you know almost left behind as a bureaucracy. And and um, then Ambassador Bush coming back from China to be the CIA director restored the agency uh, to competence and respect and it made its uh, call more noble so that more people were willing to offer their services to the CIA. And I think that he probably more than anyone is gets credit for having saved the CIA. You talk to folks with the CIA, no matter what their philosophical bent, no matter what their party persuasion, if they were part of the CIA, they have great respect for George H.W. Bush. Yeah. Um, so uh, under President H. George H.W. Bush, um, you served as assistant to the president and deputy chief of staff from 89 to 92? I, I did. Uh, and. John Sununu, Governor John Sununu, former governor of New Hampshire, was named as chief of staff to the first President Bush after he was vice president and had got elected to be president of the United States. And uh, I was asked to be the deputy chief of staff to John Sununu. John Sununu was truly one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. But he was so intelligent, he really didn't need a deputy chief of staff. Yeah. <laughs> 
but he had one. Right. That doesn't mean he always appreciated him. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've heard from other people uh, here in New Hampshire. I won't name names, but uh, he can. I know he, the names. He can. <laughs> he got, he's got the names. He, yeah, that was your job to have the names. He can be a tough guy to work with, but. Oh, he was great, though. But, I love him. Yeah, but at the end of the day, he had the right. He is, he is phenomenal. He really is one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. Uh, and, and it was a joy to work with him. It was a, a fabulous experience and probably prepared me more than anything else to be the president's chief of staff when I became the sure. president's chief of staff. Okay, so um, getting uh, so you, you helped lead the transition team from Clinton to Bush in 2000 when Bush, uh, President Bush took office. It was a office. great privilege to do that. I was asked uh, by President Bush and Barbara Bush, actually, if I would do it, uh, President Bush asked me. Barbara Bush told me he was serious. <laughs> so, <laughs> she reinforced uh, she it. Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really reinforced it, and it was a great, great honor to do that. And I, as a result, learned to appreciate many of the people that were helping President Clinton. Yeah. So Mark Guerin from Massachusetts, for example, and he was part of the transition team for President Clinton. So I had friends on both sides of the aisle, both sides of the White House experience. But it was also a great way to learn even more about the multiple bureaucracies as they go through transitions. Uh, I was part of the transition team going into the White House from Reagan to Bush. Then I ran the transition from Bush to Clinton. And both of those experiences, I think, really did add significantly to the reputation that allowed for a George W. Bush to think of me as a chief of staff. Yeah, so it kind of, in that climate there, he saw how well you handled the transition. And uh, what was it like? Or did you ever have any time with Bill Clinton? I mean, what was, oh, yeah. it, what was I, it like being around Bill Clinton, uh, well, I, seeing I, him in his last hours as president? Well, I, I've known President Clinton. I knew him before he was attorney general in Arkansas. Oh, so you guys go way back. No, no, well, I, no, I know him. And, and I obviously had a lot of dealing with him when he was governor of Arkansas. Oh, right. Because I right. was liaison to sure. Right, under Ronald Reagan. And I got... I would go to governor's association meetings and he's very personable. He's probably the one of the easiest people to talk to I've ever met. I mean, he can make you feel really important even if you're in a crowd of a thousand people and he looks at you, you're really important. Uh, so great personality. He is, a, he and President Bush the first, number 41, have a phenomenal relationship and I'm a witness to that. I've traveled with them and they're so entertaining together. Yeah, it just yeah, they wonderful. got really chummy, and, and, and also leading our relief efforts with uh, Katrina, Katrina and, and the, the and tsunami in Haiti, Indonesia, in Indonesia, right? They, they, so they've done a lot together. Uh, they've and I've I've saw I've witnessed how that they love each other. I yeah. mean, how can I say it? They love each other. <laughs> They're bros. It, They're it's, bros. No, so. it's like it's beyond that. It, it's beyond that. <laughs> it's I've beyond a political them, bromance. I both, I've seen them both cry overseeing each other. Wow. That's that's nice. So then, then that's touching. A, it is. It's yeah. really nice. Can you imagine? They, right? Clinton beat Bush. Right. With Perot. <laughs> yeah. In '92. Right. Yeah. yeah. And now 2016, we might see Hillary and Jeb come into the fold. Yeah. That's going to yeah. be an interesting dynamic. I'm rooting for it. Yeah. What, what do you what do you uh, what do you think of the implications of of a Hillary Clinton administration if that does happen? What, what's your take on that? Um, I hope she won't have her own server at another home. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we, we don't want to see Bill as the first gentleman. 
Basically. I don't think you have to put that word with them. Uh, <laughs> that's good. Oh, uh, man. So I wanted to ask you, um, did you, uh, I'm sure you did, it's probably a stupid question, um, but I learned in college there's no such thing as a stupid question. Did you travel with President Bush to Russia when he met with Putin during any of those visits? I did. Um, and what was that like, like the prep process for you? I mean, to, I met with, I traveled with both presidents to to, to Russia. To Russia, but I, but right. Putin, with George W. Bush, I did go with him the first time he met President Putin, which was in Slovenia. Okay. And it was a very memorable trip. The preparation was remarkable because yeah. I witnessed President George W. Bush do what most people think he didn't do well, which was homework. He was very, very well read, and he read not only that which he was given to him to read, you know, the CIA, the State Department, the Commerce Department, the Trade Representative, the NSC staff, yeah. they would send documents in, but he would also go out and because he was a history major at Yale, uh, he would also go out and get his own history books about Russia and Putin and whatever, and he sure. read them. So sometimes he would surprise the briefers from the CIA or the State Department when he would know things that they didn't know. That they weren't even because he, prep because he or did, his home, home, did his homework. Sure. So he was very well prepared going over to Slovenia, and it, it manifested itself at the very beginning of the the meeting that took place between President Putin and President Bush. And President Putin was clearly nervous. <coughs> President Bush was nervous. And yeah. Condi Rice and I, who were with President Bush, we could see that they were both nervous. And President Putin was even speaking a little bit of English. And you could say that he had tried to work really hard to speak a little bit of English. So it was flattering to see that he put a lot of effort into it. But when they sat down at the table, I remember President, Clinton, uh, President Putin had a stack of uh, three by five cards which the Russians always have. It's kind of their cue cards. They want to go through everything in the card. And it was a pretty tall stack, probably two inches tall of cards. <laughs> and it, when they sat down, the translators are there, and President Putin starts to go through the cards. And I remember President Bush putting his hands on top of the cards and looking at President Putin and said, you'll have a chance to go through every one of your cards. I'm not going to rush you. But I do have one question I'd like to ask you. What was it like when you went to your dacha after it had burned to the ground and you were looking through the ashes and you found the cross that your mother gave you? Wow. That's, <laughs> that's so a pretty powerful thing to say. He knew, he knew about okay. that and then yeah. referenced it. Yeah. And President Putin looks up and said it was one of the most amazing things. Now, this is through a translator. He said, the dacha burned down and it burned all of the memorabilia I had, everything, all of my memories. And I wanted that cross because it was from my mother. Wow. And I'll never forget looking through the ashes and it started to glisten. Mm. So then they went on, they went through all their business cards. They did their notes. The press conference afterwards in Slovenia, which was at a fabulous setting, just a spectacular setting. I remember a reporter, I think it was from the New York Times, asking, do you think it can trust President Putin? And President Bush said something like, 
I looked and looked into his eyes and I saw his soul or something like that. Anyway, it was a very flattering and very controversial thing to say. It, it was not a political thing to say. Right, given the relationship okay. between yeah. the okay. well and Putin's background but, too. But it spoke about the moment that began the whole meeting. That's what it was. That's what it was about. Now, I didn't happen to agree with the president. I think President Putin is a steely-eyed, contrived czarist. <laughs> he would like to restore Russia to the great czarist power. I'm not sure he's looking to reinvent the Soviet Union. I think he wants czarist Russia back. Well, he wants total control. And, you know, I'm not to say that Putin was disingenuous during that moment with President Bush. I don't think he but was. But you got to remember his KGB background, his training. He's trained to deceive you know, trained to lie, all that kind of stuff. So I think that plays in heavily into his personality. Well, even I, I don't think he was contrived in responding to that, which I mean, he did th not expect that, that the president to say. That took him way off guard. That was a human he, moment. I mean, that was a on, human we, moment we between two world leaders. We can still have human moments, you know, yeah. post-Cold post War. Yeah, exactly. That's great. But yeah, no, I was but, just interested in that because obviously, you know. I didn't mean to know, get you off track here. No, no, no. That's a fascinating story. You were right there. I wish I could have been there. That would have been, That would have been phenomenal. Yeah, you really have a, a front row seat to a lot of historical things, and uh, I, in my opinion, uh, none more so than uh, the morning of September 11th, and that's uh, obviously a lot of people are, are familiar with that now iconic photograph of, of you and the, the school whispering into President Bush's ear. Um, I'm sure you've talked about, you know, the morning millions of times, so right here. Um, yeah, there's, that's the photo right there. Uh, I don't know if what, you know what you would like to speak to that. Sure. Uh, I, I, first of all... I promised, we all promised, those of us who lived through September 11, 2001, and remember, we basically we all lived through it unless you were born after 2001. Yeah, we were, we were <laughs> okay. 14 in history okay. class. Freshman so, in high school. No, and we all promised never to forget. You know, almost 3,000 people died, and a very large percentage of them were just people who were first responders answering a noble call of public service. Others were just going to work or just passengers on a plane. And we promised we'd never forget, and it was a day that changed every day thereafter. We are still living with changes because of that day. So I feel more than comfortable talking about it because I promised I would never forget, and I, I almost think I'm helping to keep everybody else's promise so that they will recognize it. As Absolutely. a promise. So the day started. It was a spectacular day in America. The lower 48 literally did not have a cloud in the sky. It was like a perfect day. We woke up in Sarasota, Florida, and it was a, the trip down to Florida the, the evening before had followed a, a day of pomp and circumstance in Washington, D.C., where we had a you know, 21 gun salute, the Troops marching in front of the president. We had a speech from the Japanese, uh, the Australian prime minister. We presented him a bell. Normally, that whole thing would have taken place on the south lawn of the White House. That's where the troops would have marched. That's where the 21-gun salute would have been going off and everything else. But instead, it was at the Navy Yard because the south lawn of the White House was getting set up with picnic tables for the congressional barbecue. So the event took place at the Navy Yard. After the event, we hopped in a plane and we flew to Jacksonville, Florida, and we did a, a school event, Leave No Child Behind school event. And then we flew to Sarasota, Florida. We arrived at Sarasota, Florida, kind of at dusk, to this spectacular resort. 
a tennis and golf resort. And there was a terrible stench when we opened the doors from the limousine. That's because the red tide had killed a lot of fish. They washed up on the beach and it stunk. And I, it hit me as soon as I opened the door of the car. Ooh. Okay, ooh, this place stinks. And <laughs> we went into the hotel and kind of dropped our luggage and we all scooted out because we were going to a, a dinner that was not a working dinner. It was a dinner that Governor Bush had put together with some of their friends in the greater Florida Tampa, St. Pete area. And uh, so we, and it was fun. And the president had a good time. He didn't have to be on. He, he wasn't performing for anybody. He could sit and just talk and, and enjoy a good meal. He actually stayed out late, which was very unusual for President George W. Bush. So we got back to the hotel a little bit later than we had planned. And that's always a concern for the chief of staff who's in charge of the schedule. So I'm paying attention to everything. I get up very early in the morning. I knew that the president was going to go out for a run on a golf course. And so I went down, checked things out. And I remember coming down in front of the hotel and I saw advanced people and secret service agents. And I smelled and this terrible stench was still there. And I tracked down the president's physician and I said, the president's going to go out for a tough run this morning. Is, is the stench going to cause him to be sick? And he says, no, there won't be any problem. He'll be fine. I then I noticed the motorcade was being set up a little bit wrong. So I went to one of the advancement. I said, let's move that car down this one and kind of juggle things like that. I then go in to see the president. He's uh, putting, putting on his running clothes, getting ready to go for the run. And he's nervous about it. Uh, the Bushes are very competitive people. They don't like to let their kids beat them at checkers, and they don't like to lose at anything. Okay? Sure. The president had invited a reporter to go running with him. And then he found out that the reporter had been an NCAA All-American cross-country runner. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah. So he was a little nervous oh. about this run in this golf course. And... We talked actually more about that than we did anything else. And I said, go out for the run. It'll be great. When you get back, we'll do the CIA briefing. Then we'll go over to the school. It should be a pretty easy day. Okay. Right. Okay. Just like any other day. And then as he's getting ready to walk out the door, I made the mistake of saying, oh, by the way, I checked with the doctor. He said you won't get sick because of the stench outside. <laughs> and he looks at me like, you looked at me, Eric. Like... <laughs> You're an idiot. <laughs> Andy, what the hell are you talking about? No, that would have been the Andrew time. <laughs> Andrew, what, what stench? And, and anyway, he came back from the run. He is feeling great because he beat the reporter, ran like seven minute and 30 second miles. He did really, really well. He felt terrific. He's got a little bit of strut to him. He goes in. with that Texas swagger. Yeah, he got the Texas swagger. <laughs> takes his shower, comes out, we do the CIA briefing, which was not that memorable to me. Wow. And then we get out and pile into limousines, and as we're getting ready to leave, I do remember two people kind of asking a question. Anybody hear about a plane crash in New York City? One of them was Carl Rove, and the other was Dan Bartlett. Carl Rove, senior advisor to the president at the time and kind of the political director. And Dan Bartlett was the number two person in the communications department. 
So we get into the limos, we drive to the Emma E. Booker School in Sarasota, which is an elementary school. We go into a classroom that had been converted into a White House command center. The president goes to a phone, calls Dr. Condoleezza Rice's national security advisor, who's back in D.C. I go in to the classroom where the president's going to be. So I can see the second graders lining up to start to come into the classroom. I see a press pool gathering. Ari Fleischer is getting the press pool gathered and things are looking great. And I go back into the holding room and I'm standing with the president and the principal of the school right at the door to the classroom in the holding room, but right at the door to the classroom, when the director of the White House Situation Room, a woman by the name of Deb Lauer, who was a Navy captain at the time, comes up to the president and says, Sir, it appears a small twin-engine prop plane crashed into one of the towers at the World Trade Center in New York City. That's what she says. Then the reaction from the three of us, the principal, the president, and myself, was all the same kind of, oh, what a horrible accident. The pilot must have had a heart attack or something. It was kind of that thought to it. And then the principal opens the door to the classroom. And she and the president walk into the classroom. The door shuts. I'm still inside the holding room when Captain Lauer comes up to me and says, Sir, it appears it was not a small twin-engine prop plane. It was a commercial jetliner my mind flashes to the fear that must have been experienced by the passengers on the plane. They had to know it wasn't gaining altitude. That's all. I don't know why that's where my mind went, but that's where it went. But that was only a nanosecond because Deb Lauer came right back up to me and she said, oh my gosh, another plane hit the other tower at the World Trade Center. And I stood at the door, and my mind flashed to three initials, U-B-L, Osama bin Laden. That's what we called Osama bin Laden. I knew about the attacks on the World Trade Center in 1992. I knew about the blind sheikh. I knew about al-Qaeda. You know, I knew they were bad guys, and they wanted to attack us. So then I stand at the door and I perform a test the chiefs of staff have to perform all the time. And it's usually a really tough test. And you get it 100 times a day or more. Does the president need to know? This was an easy test to pass. Yes. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah okay. absolutely. Yeah. So I consciously thought what I would do. I knew that he was in front of second graders. I knew he was in front of a press pool. And I did not want to have a talk with him. I didn't want to dialogue. So I made a decision that I was going to pass on two facts, make one editorial comment, and do nothing to invite a question. So I opened the door to the classroom, and I step inside the classroom, and I was coming in from backstage. So the president is sit sitting with his back to me in front of second graders. A teacher is sitting to his left, the press pool is in front of him to his right, and the teacher is conducting a dialogue between the students and the president. So say good morning to the president. Good morning, Mr. President. The president's answering back. So this dialogue is going back and forth. I stood there waiting for that dialogue to finish, and Ann Compton with ABC News is in the press pool, and she looks up at me and she gestures 
since we're on radio, uh, she gestures, what's up? I gesture back, no voice, two planes and show my right hand crashing into my left hand. She then gestures back to me, what? Hmm. And then I walk up to the president as soon as the teacher says to the students, take out your books. So that was that's my... That's an opportune moment. That was my, so that's when I walked up to him and I leaned over and I'm not even sure he knew I was in the room until I came up behind him and he kind of felt my presence. And I leaned over and I just whispered into his right ear. I said, a second plane hit the second tower. America is under attack. And that was all I said to him. And I stood back from him so he couldn't ask me a question. I could see his head bobbing up and down. And then I went back to the door of the classroom, looked at him again. His head was still bobbing up and down. I could see Secretary Rod Page, the Secretary of Education, the principal of the school, and a White House staffer by the name of Sandy Cress standing off to my left. And they're kind of, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? And then I saw Ari Fleischer huddled with reporters. And then I was struck by how young and innocent the second graders were. They didn't even know, it was oblivious. Mm. They were oblivious to what had happened. Right. I was pleased with how the president responded. I know it's controversial and lots of people will call in saying, oh, that's wrong. The president sat there and I was glad he did. He did nothing to introduce fear to those very young kids. Right. He did nothing to demonstrate fear to the media that would have translated it to the satisfaction of the terrorists all around the world. He didn't fall into the fetal position and start crying. He didn't jump up with his hair on fire. So how I was also was pleased that he stayed there because I could go in the holding room and get some work done. If he had come into the holding room with me, he would have been barking out orders to everybody. So instead, I'm in the holding room, and the first thing I said was, get the FBI director on the phone. The second thing I said was, get a line open to the vice president, get a line open to the White House Situation Room, get the crew back on Air Force One, tell the pilot we're going to have to get out of here. We weren't planning to re leave for a number of hours later. To Dan Bartlett with the communications team, I said, get some remarks written. We've got 600 people in a gymnasium, and the president has got to tell him something, but we can't say anything we don't know. <laughs> okay? The president walks in. Turns out that he was in the classroom for about seven and a half minutes. I did not know that at the time. It seemed like about two minutes to me. Right. Just everything must be, okay. time must be crazy. Literally, what's the first thing he says when he walks into the room after everybody gloms onto him? He said, get the FBI director on the phone. Uh -huh. We could say he's right here, Mr. President. We got him. Which it was, was a phenomenal day. At that time, day. Mueller? Mueller? Mueller, Robert Mueller. Well, he'd only been on the job for about a week. Now, at also at this point, were the gears of COG... Starting to turn? Not not quite then. I mean, who, who was, it, was that COG kind of your is the job Yes, yes. Believe it or not, that is a big part of my job. And yeah. I had a deputy White House chief of staff named Joe Hagan, who handled all of that stuff for me. And but the continuity of government, there were two: the continuity of government, government, and the continuity of the presidency. Right. And uh, they're both huge responsibilities, and most of us uh, don't talk about it. Okay. 
Fair, totally that, fair. That's fair. Yeah, I'm just fascinated by it. I mean, yeah, no, it's, it's kind of deal. similar when a cabinet member is designated during the State of the Union. It happens to every State of the to, Union, um, and no cabinet member wants to be the one designated. <laughs> it's like getting the short straw. Yeah. So you, <laughs> there's another story, too, that was cited early on. Obviously, there was a ton of stories uh, with respect to 9-11 of a, uh, a van showing up at, at one of the hotels in Florida with Middle Eastern-looking men saying they had an interview with President Bush. Is that something that you've heard of? I never heard it. Never heard that never story? Never heard that story. That they could have been another group that was or, or affiliated with the attacks because there had been I, another... There was... There were, there were, there was, the fog of war is real. Yeah. And I do remember that morning as, as we're getting ready to leave that there that the Secret Service was very nervous because they thought Air Force One itself was a target because they had heard the word for the Air, that the Secret Service uses for Air Force One in a radio communication. Angel is next? Angel, yes. I've heard that one before, too, and so yeah. That was one that I did hear about yeah, real that, time, what, and it was, was real. Well, we weren't sure. We didn't know whether somebody was sitting at the end of the runway with a Stinger missile or whatever. Yeah. So, th there, the, yes, the pilot was anxious to get out of there. Uh, after the president spoke, and he did say one thing that I cringed as soon as I heard him say it, because I knew that it wasn't likely to be true. He said, I'm sorry I have to leave. We're going right back to Washington, D.C. Yeah. yeah. And I knew we were not likely to no. go back to Washington, no. D.C. So I was nervous about that. Uh, as we're leaving the Emma E. Booker School, the president and I are in the back of the limousine. We're both on the phones. He is frustrated because he can't find Secretary Rumsfeld because that's when the, the Pentagon was being hit. And Secretary Rumsfeld on was out lawn, helping with the rescue. Carrying people. Yeah, helping and, rescue people. Right. But the president was frustrated, legitimate. How come I can't get through the Secretary of Defense? Why can't they find the Secretary And the vice Defense? president so, was in the PIOC at this point? With the, president, the vice president was either in the PIOC or on his way down to the PIOC. And, and we are just arriving at Air Force One. I'm on the phone. He's on the phone. We jump out of the limo, run up the stairs to Air Force One, and I notice that the engines on Air Force One are already running. And that's a no-no. You don't start the engines usually until the president is safely on the plane. Right, right. So that meant we're moving fast. Getting out of here. So as soon as the president got on, wham, the door slams shut. We go down the runway, take off an extremely steep climb, and we go up to 48,000 feet. We're flying in a serpentine way, wait, waiting for fighter jets to catch up with us. And then I'm dealing with the challenge of you know, the pilot asking me where we're going. I had two military aides on the plane, which is also unusual. Usually there's only one, but I had two military aides that were phenomenally helpful. And I said, give me every option. I want every long runway. I want to know where everybody, you know, what are the options? Turns out Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana has a B-52 long runway. They were already in the middle of an exercise where they were on the highest level of alert as part of their exercise. So I said, perfect, we're going to Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana. And, but I told everybody on the plane, don't, I don't want any radio communication to say that's where we're going. Okay, I go back, I'm in talking with the president, and he is telling me, we're going back to Washington, D.C. And I said, Mr. President, I don't think you really want to make that decision right now. And he says, no, we're going back to Washington, D.C. I said, Mr. President, you really don't want to make that decision right now. He got increasingly loud, increasingly angry, 
I'm the commander-in-chief, and we're going back to Washington, D.C. I said, I really don't think you want to make that decision right now. I was trying to be cool, calm, and collected the entire time. But I said, no, I don't think you want to make that decision. I want you to think about it a little bit longer. I don't want you to make that decision. Give it some time, like, yeah. So, wow. And I know the pilot didn't want to go back to Andrews unless he knew it was all clear. Yeah. And I knew the Secret Service didn't want him to go back to Washington, D.C. until they knew what the situation was. So I also say... The Secret Service is right near me as I'm talking to the president. Never once did I feel that they were defending me. <laughs> yeah, right. They were just silent. <laughs> yeah, but, wow, that's crazy. But anyway, it was a firm conversation. We go to Barksdale. Everybody gets off the plane. We had more people on the plane than we needed. And so we went down with a skeleton crew. And the president taped some remarks for the American people. We had a call back to the White House. And then we went, uh, we taped a message, went out. We got back on Air Force One with a skeleton crew that included um, representatives from the media. There was actually a healthy debate. Do you take people from the media with you or yeah, not? Yeah, Ian Compton, I believe, was and, one of them. Uh, Ari Fleischer did a really good job of managing that whole process. He was an advocate of the media being there. Anyway, th we then flew the Strategic Air Command in, in Nebraska. And when we landed, we went down into a deep bunker right out of the movies, all these flat screen TVs, all these generals and admirals, and, and you could hear all of the communications and see the flat screen TVs showing where planes were all throughout the United States. And the fog of war was very evident there because you heard somebody saying, there's a plane coming in from Madrid and it's not giving a signal. Oops, no, it's not coming in from Madrid. Oh, it's, you know, so there's lots right. of... Yeah, you would, you would not want to have been Norman Mineta that day. So it, was, it was lots <laughs> of things happening. We then go to a, another room in the bunker, and we have a secure video conference with the national security team that's in the bunker at the White House or at the CIA or at the Defense Department or the State Department, have a really good national security meeting. And then <clears throat> the president turns to me and said he'd really like to get to Washington, D.C. I go back, talk to the Secret Service. They come to an accommodation, so we start to head back to Washington, D.C. Obviously, uh, on Air Force One, you have good, pretty good satellite connection. You see TVs and all this kind of stuff. We watched the, the World Trade Tower collapse. Obviously, we knew about Flight 93, nose diving into the ground in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And by the way, the first heroes in the war on terror were the civilians that were on Flight 93. <laughs> yeah. And when they said, let's roll, yeah, Todd Beamer and company. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Unbelievable. And if they had been wearing military uniforms, they all would have gotten the medal, Congressional Medal of Honor. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, absolutely. It was, it was unbelievable. Um, but then you see the, the, the World Trade Tower Center's collapse and pancake and tears in everybody's eyes on Air Force One were watching it. Indescribable. And before that, you saw people jumping out of the building. It was just beyond, beyond comprehension, beyond comprehension. We end up coming, we're flying to Washington, D.C. As we're coming in for the landing, the fighter jets were so close to us, you could see the faces of the pilots out the windows from Air Force One. And you could see smoke billowing up from the Pentagon. And I'm right next to the president looking out the windows, and he says to me, that's the face of war in the 21st century. We land, we get into a helicopter that becomes Marine One. 
we lift up and normally you lift up and you fly straight to the Washington Monument then you go right to the South Lawn of the White House. This time we went up and we only went to treetop level and then we're flying zigzag in case people are down there with Stinger missiles it's harder to hit the target that way and we zipped over made it to the White House we come in low land at the White House lawn president goes into the Oval Office the rug is rolled up Klieg lights are put up because he's going to make an address to the American people. We go into the dining room just off of the Oval Office. The president uh, has a speech that was written by Mike Gerson and Karen Hughes, and he makes a lot of edits in it, practices it a few times. We're in there talking, and then he goes in and addresses the American people. Very short address, but unbelievably historic. And then we go down to the bunker under the White House and have a National Security Council meeting. Uh, end of the day comes, President and Mrs. Bush go up to the residence to bed. I go back to my office. I'm in my office doing work. It's by this time 10.30ish at night, maybe 11 o'clock at night. And all of a sudden, two Secret Service agents come rushing into my office, lift me up out of my chair and start running with me down the corridor. And they take us to the bunker underneath the White House. The great big door slams shut. You're in there. The president comes down. Laura Bush comes down. They're carrying their pets. And they have a, a nice room down there. I have a nice steel cot. <laughs> and and, and then, the, then we get the all clear sign. A plane had entered the airspace of Washington, D.C. without identifying itself. So it turns out it was one of ours. But, but everyone's on edge at this yeah, point. So they yeah. go up to bed. I then go home, haven't talked with my wife the entire day. Sheesh. And her church, she's a minister, and her church is right near the CIA. So they opened it for the folks at the CIA and all this kind of stuff. Hadn't talked with her all day. I get in there. My adrenaline is pumping like crazy. And that was September 11th, 2001. Wow. Unbelievable. And yeah. I wore my welcome out. With you, um, right here. Yeah, I mean, no, obviously no, but yeah, if you got to get going, um, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. We'll do a quick well, Franklin Pierce plug. I, do, I want um, to plug Franklin Pierce. You know, yes, I was involved with Franklin Pierce because someone from my hometown, George Hagerty, became the president of Franklin Pierce, and I served as a reference for him when he applied for the job and actually called on his behalf to some of the search committee members from the Board of Trustees and said he's a great guy. Uh, he obviously, he went to Holbrook High School. He was on the track and cross-country teams there. And he was a freshman. He was an incoming freshman when I was an outgoing senior. Then he went to Stonehill College and he went to Harvard, got his Ph.D. and all this kind of stuff. So I've known him for a long, long time. And, and after he became the president of Franklin Pierce, he invited me to join the Franklin Pierce Board of Trustees, and I was very proud to serve on that. I actually resigned when I became, when I was asked to be the president's chief of staff. So I love Franklin Pierce. I've watched what happens at Franklin Pierce. It is a fabulous location. I mean, the location is like beyond beautiful. And in fact, I would have been a lousy student at that school because all I would have done was stare at Pearly Pond or Mount Monadnock. Yeah, that's part of it, part of the distraction. Yeah, <laughs> as, as a student there, I can, I can attest to that. <laughs> but anyway, I watched it transform young people uh, where they could experience successes that many in the, of their friends would never expect it. So I believe in a school. I love it. Uh, not only do you get a great education, you get a great life experience because you are intimately engaged with a community that is 
very different, but phenomenally caring because you are isolated. And you also have sports teams that are the envy of almost every Division II school in the country. In fact, as I speak to you, the Franklin Pierce Ravens baseball team is number one in the entire country. And our lacrosse team went to the NCAA regional championships and we won the first game and we lost to the number one team in the entire country and they were usually winning by 20 points, 30 points. We lost by four points, 12 to eight to them. So we've had phenomenal success and it's not just men, you should see our women's teams. But anyway, Franklin Pierce is a special place where people get a special education. When you come to Franklin Pierce, it's about success, it's not about failure, and we help people find success. That's well, you heard stuff. it there, folks. Well, I had one, one more question. We, one more question. One more question. One more question. Um, House of Cards, you're a fan of the show? I am How a fan of the show. How closely did it mirror your time as uh, Chief of Staff? Is it, is it accurate at all? Are there any similarities? Can you? I know people wanted to kill me when I was the President's Chief of Staff, but they <laughs> thankfully didn't do it. And no, I never killed anybody else. I love the show. <laughs> I, Kevin Spacey does a great job. I, I love the storyline. I think I know who his character is. I won't, no. no. I think there's two presidents. <laughs> two presidents. He we'll said let this. the viewers decide that. But, uh, but and, no, but I love Democrats, the show. Democrats, by the way. Yeah. But you, you should know that I enjoy all of the shows that have been loosely based on the White House. Um, my favorite one was the television show that ran for a long time, The West Wing. Oh, yeah. Okay. From New Hampshire, president from New Hampshire. That's right. Josiah Bartlett? <laughs> Leo. Oh, Leo Bartlett? No. Oh, oh, the president was oh. from New Hampshire. Yeah, right. well, in the show, yeah, Martin right. Sheen yep, played yep, the president, yep, yep, I yep, believe, yep, was from yep. New Hampshire. John Spencer was the chief of staff, who was yeah. Leo. Right. And can I tell you a quick John yeah. Spencer story? Yeah, yeah. So this is soon after I became the chief of staff of the president of the United States, which is a pretty heavy title to have. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, that's... And I get, in, I, I get the obligation to give a relatively significant policy wonk speech to the scientists that are getting awards from CDC and NIH and NASA and all this kind of stuff. So it's a black tie event at the JW Marriott Hotel in Washington, D.C. And I go in and I present some of the awards and have to give this speech. So I show up to the event and it's really the first event I've spoken at since I became the chief of staff. So it's pretty new. And I show up at the hotel, and the advanced lady who meets me there is like really too excited to see me. Like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. I am so glad to hear you're here. She said, the chief of staff is here. And I'm thinking, oh, wait geez. a minute, I am the chief of staff. <laughs> What's oh, going man. on? And, and she kept saying, oh, you, you've got to meet the chief of staff. You've got to meet the chief of staff as we're walking down to this holding room. I get there. It's John Spencer from the television uh, show The West Wing, okay. the chief of staff. <laughs> So I walk in, and, and he was very nice, but uh, he did not have a type A personality. He was a little shy. Right, he, okay. not like he was in the show. Yeah. He, so he, it's kind he, of a meta he, moment. He, he, was, he was polite, not effervescent, and not the best conversationalist. You know, the conversation was like, uh, nice to meet you. Oh, nice to meet you, too. Um, and then he's... You know, I said, 
He said, well, what's it like to be the president's chief of staff? I said, what's it like to play the president's chief of staff? Tell me all about it. Yeah, the real world consequences don't apply to you. You can shut the camera off. And he said, well, you know, I have a script, and, you know, they tell me where to stand. They know that. And I said, boy, I have no script. People do tell me where to stand frequently. (laughs) But... But it was a nice, pleasant conversation. We talked. He actually, we talked a little substance, you know, some of the policy issues that we're working on, the organization of the White House. But then he asked, "Can I ask you a personal question?" And I said, "Sure, no, no problem. You can ask me anything." He said, "What do you make?" Well, okay, that's public record. I said, "It's public record. I'm a public employee. It's public yeah. record." And at the time, it was $142,000. So I said, $142,000. And he looks at me like I'm crazy. And he says, is that per year? What is it? I said, that's my annual salary. That's my $142,000. He said, how do you live on that? Oh, please. I said, I said, can I ask you a personal question? (laughs) I said, what do you make? He said, I can't tell you. My contract does not let me tell you. But. There you go. It's about what you make per episode, and I'm guaranteed something like 26 episodes a year or something like that. Unless so, he gets pushed in front of a train. So, no, but that that's what it is. So there is... That's kind of a disconnect right there. There's a big disconnect. But he yeah. was wonderful. The same day, I hosted an ice cream party in my office at the West, in the, West, the real West Wing at the White House for the cast of the television show The West Wing, but Leo, John Spencer, couldn't make the, that ice cream party, but it was a blast to have the cast there, and they were excited to be at the real White House, and we were excited to have them. That's awesome. That's a cool story. Well, thanks for having That's me awesome. in Jaffe Center. Thank you so much Center. for coming, Andy. Yeah, thank, thank you. you, Andy Carr. I love been... waking up to see that mountain. Hey, we're neighbors. It's beautiful. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, awesome interview. Um, just so thankful and grateful to um, Mr. Andy Card, the current president of Franklin Pierce University. Number 14. Yes. Number 14. Number, yep, 14. I worked for number B, 40. B41. 41. Yep. And then B43. And then 43. Yeah, B43. As we call them in class. But now you're Mr. President, isn't it? Yeah. I am Mr. President. Maybe get W to be your chief of staff now. (laughs) It might be, yeah, maybe be a pay cut to what he's used to. (laughs) But but anybody who wants to be president should come to New Hampshire, and they'd have a better chance of being president if they came to Franklin Pierce University when they're in New Hampshire. That's right. Come to Franklin Pierce University and sit down with Jackman Radio for an interview. And Andy Card. So again, thank you, Mr. Andy Card. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, as always, I'm Eric Jackman. Mike Jackman. Thank you for tuning in to Jackman Radio. Have a fantastic evening. Someday I'm gonna make a mine, oh yeah Someday I'm gonna make a mine